Let's just pray together one more time, if you will. Pray with me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Father, for this tremendous group of people and for the amazing opportunity we've had to gather here in your name together today and just for the safety, the peace, the quietness, the comfort, the joy of being here together. And, and Lord, we just thank you now for this time when we can focus on, on your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us um, so that we might know you and so that we might worship you. And uh, Lord, uh, help us today, Lord. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher and that we would have open hearts and that we would be coming before you now and just sitting at your feet and allowing you to, uh, to teach us and to challenge us uh, about our lives. We thank you for your amazing grace and for the, the wonderful gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that this morning, Lord, that you would be lifted up, you would be exalted in our midst and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So along with the uh, personal eyewitness accounts of the apostles as they proclaimed the good news, they also wrote letters. We had been in the book of Acts a while back going through, and now we're tying some of the uh, letters or epistles, as they're sometimes called, into the, uh, the narrative of Acts. Uh, and uh, so two, uh, uh, two weeks ago, we, um, we were in uh, Galatians, Last week, Doug shared with us from 1 Corinthians. So some of the letters the apostles wrote were inspired by God and have made it into our New Testaments, New Test parts of our New Testament scripture, including those letters and including uh, uh, what we call the, uh, the Pauline epistles. And today we're going to be looking at one of what we call the general epistles. So you have this large body of letters written by Paul, and uh, they and that are called the we call the Pauline epistles, and then you have these other letters written by uh, well James and John and Peter uh, that uh, we just kind of group them together and call them the general general letters or general epistles. And they include the book of Hebrews, First and Second Peter, First, Second, and Third John, and the book of Jude. And they all occur in that order in the New Testament. However, many of you know that the order of the books in the New Testament is not always chronological. And so we've been following the Gospel Project curriculum that our kids are doing. And so there today, they're learning about the same things that we're going to be talking about here. And many of us are studying as well and sharing about in our community groups, which uh, I'm finding this to be a tremendous way for us as a church family of all ages to focus uh, our lives together around the study of God's Word. And I'm really excited about that as a pastor. I think that uh, uh, it means a lot for us as a church to be able to do that. And uh, I'm, I'm excited about the, the, the fruit of that in our, in our lives. So uh, today we're going to be spending some time in the book of James. And there are a few fascinating things about the book of James. One is the authorship. Because the book of James was not written by... James, the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve that Jesus called to follow him while he was here on earth. Um, the book of James was written by another James. James, by the way, is uh, Greek for the Hebrew Jacob, if you didn't know that. Uh, just an interesting side note. Um, but this James, who wrote the book of James, is actually none other than the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the thing that makes that so fascinating is that we're told in Scripture that his brothers did not believe in him. If you read through the gospel accounts, you will see there no, at no time did any of Jesus' family, with the exception of Mary, his mother, accepted him as Savior and Lord. But that changed with the resurrection of Jesus. At least it changed for James. Uh, and you can read about that, and you can read some of James' story in Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter uh, uh, 15, uh, the council, the Jerusalem council that J James mentioned there that, that, that uh, presided over the Jerusalem council and, and, uh, and uh, um, mandated the letter to be written to the Gentile churches and that we looked about there, was that three or four or five weeks ago? That was this, this James, the brother of our, our Lord. So it's really interesting. So when you come to the book of James, and if you want to turn there with me, James chapter 1, verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever think it might have felt just a little bit strange for, for James? <laughs> he spent his whole life with this brother, uh, you know, Joshua, uh, Jesus. Um, yeah, they probably all the squabbles, you know, sibling rivalry and probably all kinds of stuff like that going on. And now here he is writing and he says, James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever get, ever try to get your siblings to serve each other? <laughs> it's not an easy task. But James's life had been transformed, and his knowledge of Jesus had been completely transformed. And so he writes here, James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Um, another interesting thing about James the epistle of James, is that it was the first written of all the letters. Now last, uh, two weeks ago, we were in Galatians, and I mentioned to you then that the letter of Galatians was Paul's first letter, that Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians, we figure, uh, sometime shortly after his first mission trip, which happened in 46, 47 A.D., but scholars estimate that the book of James was written sometime between 40 and 45 A.D. And what this means is that James is not only the earliest letter written in the New Testament, it's earlier than all of the books in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, first written. And... <clears throat> the early dating, you say, well, well you know, well, that's interesting, but how is it significant? Well, one of the things that makes it significant is that the book of James' <laughs> early date helps us to appreciate um, some, of the, uh, some of its Jewish flavor. The book of James has a Jewish flavor, even though it's written in, in very um, uh, well-written Greek, it has a Jewish flavor to it. And uh, it also helps us understand a little bit that the early church uh, was very Jewish, primarily. How many of you know that Jesus was a Jew? Good. We're, we're, we're off to a good start. How many of you know that 
uh, all 12 of the disciples Jesus called that he called to follow him in his earthly ministry were, were, were Jews. Did you know that? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you probably all know as well that they lived among Jews and that the early church ministry, uh, they, starting with the day of Pentecost moving forward, was centered primarily in Jerusalem, which is the capital of, uh, of the land, the promised land of Israel. Um, and even as the gospel went out from there, we've been learning in the book of Acts that in the words of Paul, it was to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we see that pattern in Paul's mission life and work, right? Um, and the Jewishness of the early church helps us to understand the severe persecution that the early believers faced. Because if you read the book of Acts, you'll find that in the early, book, in the early chapters of Acts, the, the believers gathered in the temple. So you have these people, Jewish people, in the temple, in the Jewish temple, talking about Jesus, the Son of God, who died on a cross and was cursed, suffered the curse of God for our sin and rose again from the dead. Very controversial. Very threatening. And even as the gospel moved out from Jerusalem, we have seen that the pattern, uh, at least in Paul's, Paul's ministry, was to start in where? As he moved out, where, where did he go first when he went to, to Philippi? Where did he... Trick question, because they didn't have a synagogue in Philippi. Remember, they went to the river with a place of prayer. But he would have gone to the synagogue if there had been a synagogue there. And, and so in Corinth and, a, and Athens and so on, that's where he always started. And so how threatening would it have been for those synagogue leaders and the leaders in the temple and so on to have these, these young, zealous um, Jews pro proclaiming uh, a gospel which was the fulfillment and the consummation of the Jewish faith and prophecy, but very threatening. And that helps us to understand some of the persecution that the early believers uh, received. Not all of it, because it came from other sources as well, but that was a lot of it. How many of you have read the book of James? Ah, oh, I would like to see every hand go up. Be a Bible reader. Be a Bible reader. Um, many of you have read it many times. And those of you who have read it or read it many times will be familiar with different themes that, that James picks up. Uh, he starts right off with the theme uh, or the topic of trials and tribulations and temp trials and temptations. And he, then he, talk, he talks about other things. He talks about wisdom. He talks about uh, how we need to tame our tongues. And he talks about the faith without works and so on. And so you can, uh, it can feel uh, a, little bit, a little bit random. He talks about uh, warnings about wealth and patience and suffering. He talks about prayer. And it may seem, seem a bit random, but there's actually a theme that ties the book of James together. And we're going to be uh, talking about that a bit this morning as we move through uh, some of James chapter 2. So that's our text this morning, James chapter 2. And we're going to be uh, moving down through from chapter 2, verse 1, down through to verse uh, 13. That's our, our passage that's been set up for us by the curriculum. And that's what we're going to do. So, verse 2, or verse 1, sorry, chapter 2, James, my brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith 
in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Or as some translations have it, don't show favoritism. Now what does he mean by that? Well, fortunately for us, he goes on to give us a very succinct uh, example of what he's talking about. And that helps to illustrate what it is he's talking about. So let's read that, verses 2 through 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Just as a, a bit of a side, the word there in Greek for assembly in verse 2 is synagogue. Or synagogue, as we like to say. And I remind you again of the early dating of James and the Jewish flavor of his book as it comes to us out of a context of a church that was largely Jewish in the synagogues, meeting in synagogues. Interesting, isn't it? So James tells this, this offers this scenario. Um, and his point is, don't show uh, partiality or don't show favoritism. And so we are challenged to understand well what James means. And he tells this story. So what does James mean when he says don't show favoritism? Does he mean that we should treat everyone the same? I would suggest to you that that's not what James means because we're not supposed to treat everybody the same. I'll give you three examples. If we were full up today and there was no seats and you're a guy and you're sitting here and a woman comes up and stands off to the side of you, would you give her your chair, gentlemen? I hope you would. Why would you do that? Because that's the right thing to do. Can I get an amen? That's the right thing to do. Or if you are a young person and you're here today and an elderly person came in and stood off to the side, would you, young person, get up and offer that elderly person, now be careful, <laughs> would you give your chair to an elder? <laughs> poor Ed that's just one of the perks Ed of getting older you get pay you give your chair what about if you're sitting here today and, and, and a veteran comes in would you offer your chair to a veteran why would you do that it's the right thing to do and you know the Bible says elsewhere Paul says in Romans Give honor to whom honor is due. And so James is 
James' point can't be that we should treat everybody the same no matter what. That's not his point. Uh, so what, what is his point? Well, it's interesting that the, uh, the word here when in uh, uh, James 2 verse uh, 4. Let me see. I find it here right now. Uh, no, so, no, it's the word partiality or favoritism in James chapter 2, verse 1. Sorry, my mistake. Um, literally, it means to uh, receive the face. So it's an idiom. So we can't really understand it literally, but we can get some insight from the literal to help us understand what he's saying. What do you think to receive the face might be? I think it has the idea of judging by appearance. You know, we talk about taking things at face value. What do we mean? Well, just Based on what I see, <laughs> this is a really important man. While this guy, uh, you can, why don't you sit over here by my feet? And James says, don't do that. And it's not that this is just something that happened in the early church. You know, where James chapter 2, written between 40 and 45 AD, this is 2018. Happens all the time. Would we ever do that? We do do it. Maybe they're thinking, ooh, big potential for giving here. Big offering today. Richard's here. I don't know. I don't know what was all going through their minds, but I do know that it is uh, very much in our human nature and very much in our culture to judge people by appearance. Um read a read a, a blog post uh, this uh, last week and 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 the the, uh, the author said this perhaps the greatest threat to the church today isn't falling for doctrinal heresy but implicitly adopting the consumerist self-centered assumptions of our western culture and you can take a western culture there and just put culture because it's Western culture, it was early uh, uh, church culture, it's the culture around us, it's culture that we've been marinated in to judge people by appearance and to allow our consumerist, self-centered assumptions to, um, to take over our lives. The uh, scenario given here by James is meant as an example, which means the details are only provided for illustrative purposes. So the robe and the ring or the ragged clothes uh, are only simply suggestive of the things that we tend to focus on when we make distinctions. James 2.4 When we make distinctions among ourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. What are some of the other things that we use to judge people by appearance? And it doesn't have to just be visual. Even, right? Skin color? Absolutely. Religion? 
we, ba we, we make all kinds of assumptions based on what we perceive a person's religious beliefs to be. Language? Oh, you hear, you hear Arabic and must be a bombist, must be a bomber. You know, suicide bomber. You're speaking Arabic, right? Yeah, we, we, we make those assumptions. Uh, we pass those judgments. What about uh, titles? Education? Pardon? Yeah, material things is, is clearly a focus here because we do that a lot, don't we? You know, what type, what, what type of a car does the person drive? If somebody's driving a, a really old car, uh, Bill Jowdy's not here this morning, he drives a really old car. Doug drives a really old truck, but they're really nice. I'm talking, you know, like 1995 uh, Chevette or something like that. I don't know, you know. And, and we would make assumptions about that person, right? I'm not going to pick on Chevettes because they were a great car. But we make assumptions. <laughs> Clothing, how people are dressed, you know. If somebody's dressed really nice, then, well, they must be a pretty good person, right? You know what they say? Clothing makes the man. Who says that? The culture says that. Right? The culture says that. Um, so, so take, take note here that it's not that judging in the fundamental sense that is, that is a problem. Uh, we can't suspend judgment. We are called to be critical thinkers. We are called to discriminate. We're called to discern, for example, between good and evil. And it's vital that we're able to do that. Uh, we're even called, Jesus tells us, to examine uh, the fruit of people's lives to see whether or not we, they are trustworthy or not. The sin is not to judge. The sin is to judge in a way <coughs> that is unrighteous. And to quote Jesus, you know, it's interesting because uh, we uh, take the words of Jesus, judge not lest you be judged, as like all that Jesus said about judgment. Jesus said lots of other things about judging. For example, he said this, judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Now, the... Um, the Jews were well instructed in this. <coughs> they were, uh, let's look at a couple of scriptures. Leviticus 19. In verse uh, 11 through 15. Let's read that. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear the Lord your God. I am the Lord. And then look what it says in verse 15. You shall, not, you shall do no justice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Sounds a lot like Jesus. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. <coughs> Excuse me. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. 
And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother, or the alien who is with you. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. Remember what God told Samuel when he was going to uh, check out Jesse's sons? You'd read in the Old Testament for that, right? In, in, uh, in the book of 1 Samuel, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. And he's not talking about David there. He's talking about David's brother, right? One of his brothers. I forget which one. Uh, the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. Jesus said, judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Stature, that's another thing we use. We judge people by their physical appearance. Now what follows in James here, follows his scenario that he, that he <clears throat> puts out there, um, are three questions that he asks, and they're rhetorical questions, uh, where the answer is presupposed, uh, but they're not absolutes. Um, he says in verse uh, 5, uh, and we'll read through verse uh, Seven, there's the three questions. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? starts off by verse 5 says has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him if you were here last week when Doug was was speaking with us out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 you would have seen or heard him say these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26 through 29 for I consider your calling brothers consider your calling uh, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. But God chose that what was foolish uh, in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what was low and despised in the world, things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, his point here. James's point, he says, uh, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? Um, it's not a, an absolute truth because we have examples scripturally of people that were very wealthy who were also rich in faith. Um, Joseph of Arimathea would be an example. And there are examples in, throughout the book of Acts as well. However, it's generally true that poor people have an easier time trusting God rather than trusting riches than rich people. In fact, to go back to the words of Jesus, he would say, you know what? It's really hard for a rich man to get into heaven. It's hard. It's 
camel through an eye of a needle hard for a rich man to get into heaven. And it's hard for us not to judge people according to their possessions and their wealth. The, um, the question is meant to prompt them to really think about, uh, about that. And you can actually tie a lot of James back into Jesus' comments in the Gospels and particularly to the, to the uh, Sermon on, on, on the Mount. And you know, Jesus had many uh, words of blessings for the poor and warnings for the rich. Uh, I, I trust you know that. And James, in his letter, actually, if you go back to chapter 1, he talks about wealthy warning for wealthy people. If you go over to chapter 4 and chapter 5, in both those chapters, you'll see comments there in James about uh, warning, uh, warnings that he gives to uh, the rich and the privileged. And uh, take a look at verse 6 and 7. You have dishonored the poor man. Not the rich are, are not the rich ones who oppress you, and the ones who drag you into court. Are they not the ones who blaspheme and honor the honorable name by which you are called? He wants them to see here that their attitudes and their actions actually associate they're actually associating themselves with their oppressors, because many of the trials and the tribulations. If you read James' letter, many of the trials and the tribulations that they were experiencing were coming from people with power and privilege. And James is pointing out to them the irony that they are actually, in doing, in acting the way they're acting, they're actually associating themselves with the ones who are oppressing them. Which is a very ironic thing to do, but it's also a very common thing. When you think about it. One of, one of the frustrations within the uh, the uh, uh, relief community as uh, a global community is money that gets sent to poor countries only to be siphoned off by their, some of their own leaders to be spent on their own selves and hoarded billions of dollars you know so, so this is not something that's uncommon this is something that's common and you, you think about uh, the betrayal of Christ and think about the role that money played in the betrayal and crucifixion of Christ remember those 30 pieces of silver these are common, common mistakes that, that people make, and they're, the, uh, they're common mistakes that we make. You know, this whole issue of privilege and power is a really big issue in our day. And it always has been, truth be known. And as Christians, listen to me. As Christians, those who hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, James says in chapter 2, verse 1. We need to make sure that we're not on the wrong side of those issues. Because make no mistake about this, God is on the side of the poor and the oppressed. And we need to make sure that we do not find ourselves, and be careful, because I see it every day on the internet. I see believers getting on the wrong side of this issue. Jesus identified with the oppressed. 
and so should we. That doesn't mean we have to say that everything they say is true. It doesn't mean to say that we have to scandalize uh, every, uh, every person who has a position of power or privilege, but we need to make very sure that we're not on the wrong side of this issue when it comes to privilege and power because it's very difficult for us, you see, because we are the rich. We are the privileged. And so when you hear, and, mo and most of us here today are white, and when you hear people talk about white privilege, do not dismiss what they're saying. If you dismiss it, you don't understand what they're saying. I'm just, I'm just saying, be careful, okay? Verses um, 8 through 11. If you, will, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality or favoritism, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The royal law is the law of the king, right? Who comes to your mind when you think of the king? I'm thinking it's probably not Justin Trudeau. Hopefully it's Jesus. He's not only king, but he's king of kings. And just speaking grammatically, that's capital K, small k. King, capital K, of kings, small k. Just, okay? King of kings. The royal law, the law of Jesus. Um, because remember, it was Jesus who who quoted throughout the Gospels over and over again that reference to the Old Testament, love your neighbor as yourself, coming out of the book of Leviticus uh, and Deuteronomy. Love your neighbor uh, as yourself. That's the royal law, the law of the king. And we've heard that on his lips. To show favoritism is a sin. Because to show favoritism is not to love. Love is a righteous thing. Doing the loving thing is doing the right thing. It's always right to do the right thing. And love is always the right thing. Just be careful how you define love. Because how our culture defines love is not always the right thing. But love as love really is, love as we have love described in Scripture, is always the right thing to do. You will never go wrong if you love and you do the loving thing. Now, Scripture doesn't just tell us to love. It tells us how to love. Check out uh, Paul's uh, words in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You're familiar with this passage. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, love does no wrong to a neighbor. 
Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So if you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from him, Paul says. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to kill him. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to tell, go around telling stories about him. Or trying to tear down his reputation by saying things that aren't true. Why, why not? Because it's wrong and because it's not the loving thing to do. Because what is right is right and what is wrong is wrong. And what is right is the loving thing to do. Because the scripture says to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the laws and the prophets hang on these two, Jesus said. Love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. But if you show partiality, you've broken God's law. If you show favoritism, you have broken God's law. If you show favoritism, you're not loving people. You're only sinning against them, and more importantly, as James brings out here, you're sinning against God. You become a transgressor of the law of God. To sin against the poor is to sin against God. To sin against the unprivileged is to sin against God. To show favoritism is to sin against God. And he talks about, verse 10 11, murder and adultery. How many of us associate favoritism with murder and adultery? Probably not very many or very often, but go back to what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount about, about uh, murder and adultery. See, we would never compare them, but God obviously does. And James does here as well, speaking on God's behalf as, as an apostle of Christ. <laughs> you know, often you'll hear people say, in churches, in Christian circles, you say, it doesn't matter how you live. Uh, Jesus loves everyone no matter what. And I hopefully by that, hopefully when we say those kinds of things, what we mean by that is that the grace and forgiveness of Jesus is big enough to cover any sin, all sin, and that sin is sin, uh, whether we perceive it as big or as little. But we need to be careful because sometimes when we say things like it doesn't matter how you live or what you do, we're communicating a wrong message because you know what, beloved? It does matter what you do. It does matter how you live. In fact, it matters a lot. And while our salvation, our relationship with God is grounded in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the proof of our salvation is in the way that we live our lives. And just so you know, that is the main theme of the book of James that ties the entire book of James together. How we live our lives doesn't save us, but it does demonstrate the sincerity and the genuineness of our faith in Christ. In fact, let's just do this before we take a look at those the last two verses. Turn to James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. This is just before James 2, 1. The last thing that he says before he says to them, do not show favoritism, he says, he says this. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious, verse 26, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives, uh, deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself from the, uh, unstained from the world. How we live our lives is a reflection of what we really truly believe in our hearts. 
And so if you go down to right after our text, James chapter 2, verse 14, what does he say there? What good is it, my brothers, if anyone, someone says he has faith but not, does not have works, can that faith save him? In other words, can that kind of faith save him? The kind of faith that does not demonstrate itself in, in works. Can that faith save him? And it's a rhetorical question, and the answer is no. And if you read through the rest of that chapter, he moves on to, that's his point. Faith without works is dead. And then he goes on, chapter 3, talk about taming of the tongue, and so on. And these, so these themes are all tied together, and they're all meant to reinforce that point for you and for me. That how we live our lives does matter, and how we treat other people does matter, because it demonstrates the genuineness of our faith in God. And even if you go back to uh, James chapter 1, verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. See, that's James's main concern. His main concern is not simply that these people would stop showing favoritism. His main concern is that these people would really understand what it really means to know Jesus Christ and the difference that he makes in, 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 our, in our lives. Um, let's, uh, let's look at those uh, last two verses, 12 and 13 there. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment without mercy to one who has shown, uh, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I'm going to read that again. So speak and act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. A few things there, and they're really important. Um, how we speak and what we do matters. And we will be judged for what we say and do. We understand that those of us who are in Christ will not be condemned. But that does not mean we will not be judged. Paul says in, in uh, 2 Corinthians, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the reward for what we do, both good and bad. You can read it. It's for 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. Now, what does James mean here by the law of liberty? We're not used to seeing those words together, law and liberty, law and freedom. We don't, we're not used to, to thinking of the law as bringing freedom because we're so used to hearing Paul talk about how being under the law is bondage. But when Paul talks about being under the law is bondage, he's talking about uh, an attempt to be accepted by God on the basis of law-keeping. That's bondage. But we need to be careful on this point. Um, let me... Let me uh, get... Uh, Vicky to put these words up. This is Jesus in John chapter 8. Jesus said to the Jews, verse 31, who had believed in him, if you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
Now, we like to inject the gospel in there, say, if you know the gospel, the gospel will set you free. And that's true. But there is a way in which all truth is liberating. That all truth sets us free. Uh, he says, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been slave to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Think about this. Jesus uses the truth to bring freedom in our lives. And if you think about it, you say, well, it doesn't matter how we live. Well, you live wrong and you will experience bondage. Whether you're a Christian or not, if you live wrong, you will experience bondage from that, long, from that wrong living. You, you, if you sin, you will bring yourself into bondage. There's no freedom in sin. There's no freedom in doing the wrong thing. And you're raising up your children and you're telling them how to live their life because you want them to do well and you want them to experience good things in their lives. Well, you do. One of the most important things, yeah, you teach, them, you teach them about the Savior. You teach them the gospel. But you also teach them right and wrong because there's no incongruity between those two things because Jesus sets us free to do good. And, and I think that that's uh, part of uh, uh, James's point here. Um, because, uh, again, Jesus said this. He said, uh, He who hears my, these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man and builds a house upon a rock. What words? He said that at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, there's all kinds of instruction in there about how we should live our lives. It's not just trust Jesus as your Savior and go on your, merrily on your way. It's trusting Jesus as your Savior and then seeking to live a life according to the truth. Of God reveals it in his word as to how we should live. And you might not like the word law, but the word law in Scripture often is talking about not just the thou shalt and the thou shalt not, but it's talking about the whole counsel of God. How God tells us we should live. Because it's right. Because you don't want to live your life in error. You don't want to live your life based on a false assumption and someday, uh-oh, this happens so often, doesn't it? Regret. I should have done this. Now look at my life. My life is a mess. Well, there was reasons why your life is a mess. And all of us have been there. Been there and done it. Um, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, blessed are the merciful, for they shall attain uh, mercy. I think that James, when he talks about the perfect law of liberty, you know, I think he is, you know, maybe he's got this whole idea that he wants to convey to us, you know, about the law being what God says and how God directs our lives. But I think he might have something specific in mind as well, because remember, he's talking here about, about mercy. And um, James chapter 2, verse 12, 13 is, is uh, the last two verses. We read them one more time. So to speak and act as those who are being judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Jesus said that over and over. Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. 
Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount. He said to them, pray like this, Our Father who are in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done as earth, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We could go over and, uh, to this, the parable of the unmerciful servant in, in Matthew 18. Um, if you if you read your Bibles, you've read it, Matthew 18. How many times shall I forgive my brother? He sins against me seven times. Jesus says to Peter, no, more like 70 times seven. And then he tells him this parable. And in the parable, there's this man who's very uh, rich and, 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 and this guy owes him more money than he could ever possibly pay in his lifetime. And the man writes it off, forgives him. And what does he do? He goes out and finds somebody who owes him a couple of bucks. And he says, I want my money. And the guy says, I can't give it to you. And so he grabs him by the throat and says, I'm going to throw you in jail until you pay me back the money. And Jesus ends that parable with these words. He says in verse uh, uh, 32 of Matthew 18, Then this master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then verse 35, listen, Jesus says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What do we do with these passages of Scripture? Ignore them? Showing mercy as an act of love does not earn God's favor. But it does show that we have experienced God's favor. When we fail to show mercy, we are supplying conclusive evidence that we are ignorant of the mercy of Jesus Christ. And earlier we sang the song Alabaster, I'm broken at your feet. Simon, Simon, see this woman? He who is forgiven much loves much and he might as well have said to Simon Simon the reason there's no love in your life buddy is because you you've, haven't experienced mercy you're just a, a religious snob Simon Simon Pharisee because if you had experienced the mercy of Christ you would extend mercy to others and that's what Jesus was saying and that's what James is saying here We uh, need to understand, I think, that the law included both justice and mercy. And I'm almost done here, so hang with me. The law included both justice and mercy. We identify the law of justice. We don't identify with the law of mercy. But the law included both justice and mercy. In fact, we like to set them at odds. 
We like to say, you know, we've got to make a choice here. Are we going to be just or are we going to be merciful? Which is it going to be? Because you can't do both. But that's not true. Because those two things exist together in God. He is both just and merciful. And all of his acts are both just and merciful. So how does that work? When does mercy, as opposed to uh, retributive justice, how does mercy become just? If you look look at verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. How does that happen? Look at the cross. Love wins. Look at the cross of Jesus, where mercy triumphed over judgment. How, how can that be? How does mercy become just? Well, let me suggest this to you, that when we receive mercy from God, and we extend that mercy to others, that's just the right thing to do. The just thing to do. Isn't it? So just as we end, I want you to go all the way back up to verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Interesting that James refers to Jesus here as the Lord of glory. Look at how he sets it out there. What can we know about how Jesus modeled this? He left Philippians chapter 2, John 13, washing disciples' feet. He left, laid aside the privilege of heaven, and got down on his knees and served and washed their feet came, took upon himself the form of a servant even, and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross, humbled himself, condescended for you and me. To show favoritism or partiality, as James talks about it here, is completely inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ which is the gospel of the Lord of glory who set it all aside and set all the status aside and made himself a servant to all I think that that's what James is talking about here and so it begs the question it all begs the question I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning I want you to think about this with me have I experienced the mercy of Jesus Christ. Have I been where that woman was? I love that passage of Scripture. That woman comes in and she washes Jesus' feet with her tears and she dries them with her hair. She breaks that jar of alabaster open just as a picture of what a, what a broken person I am. And what does she experience? She experiences the mercy of God. 
Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple praying? The Pharisee prays, oh God, thank you that I'm not like other men. And the tax collector in the far corner is saying, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. James says that justice requires that those who do not extend mercy do not get mercy. There's nothing inconsistent between that and the gospel. Because the gospel says that we cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus, we experience his mercy. And then out of that, we are given the capacity to show mercy to others. And if you don't show mercy to others, that's a strong indication that you have not experienced mercy. Because if you've really experienced the mercy of Christ, you will extend that mercy to other people. And, and I'll tell you what, it'll totally radically transform your life and it'll totally radically transform the community of those who take the name of Jesus, our glorious Lord. Father, I thank you for this tremendous group of people this morning and their attentiveness and their thoughtfulness. And Lord, we, as we've gone through this chapter, this portion of your word, uh, there's a lot in there. And, and uh, Father, we're just we're thankful that you've given us, again, thankful for your word. Lord, now as we pause in your presence and we think about these things, Lord, we, we want to just come to you as broken. Lord, because we need your mercy. We have no, no special status, nothing that would merit or warrant any kind of special privilege at all. None. And yet you bestow on us robes of righteousness. All the blessings of heaven you pour them into our lives. But oh God, God, that we might show that kind of mercy and that kind of grace to others. Lord, help us to experience your grace in such a transforming way, your mercy, that it flows out of our lives to those around us. And we pray this, that you would make your church a great, a great uh, demonstration of the gospel of Jesus and the mercy of our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray.